What's up, guys? How's everybody doing today? Good to see everybody. Glad you're here. Grab your Bible. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter number 2. Boy, sometimes I get so lost in the worship that I forget i got to get up and say something when that's over with. Uh, thank you for singing out with all your heart this morning. You know, there's, a, there's always a vast difference in the atmosphere when... Uh, when the band is singing versus when everybody's singing and everybody's pouring their heart into it. And you poured your heart into worship this morning, and I appreciate that. God inhabits the praises of his people. And, uh, and I, I believe worship is uh, one of the fundamental ways that we, that we work ourselves or move ourselves more into God's presence. And so thank you for that today. And uh, so we've been in this study. We started a study, I think, three weeks ago. Is this the third or fourth? This is the fourth week. Fourth week uh, of our study in 1 Corinthians. And uh, thus far in the study, I've pretty much told you that church people are messed up. Is that about right? Uh, but it's true. And you're going to see that more and more as we study the book of 1 Corinthians that, uh, you know, this is a hard pill to swallow, and I know that because I had a few people say something to me later, not in a critical way, but just like, you know, that was kind of a hard thing to, to accept, and that is that people are the same everywhere you go. Just because you go to church doesn't mean you're going to find people actually living a Christian life. In fact, what we're going to see in 1 Corinthians is, is you're, we're going to witness some things that took place in the church in Corinth where I hope at some point you're asking the question, how are these people even saved? And the answer to that is, in some cases, they're not. Just because a person goes to church does not mean they have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You can have a relationship with an institution and not know the God of the institution. And so when we see some of these things, and we, and we do ask those questions, because again, we're going to see things, not today, but later on in the study, that will beg the question, how can a person know God and act that way? Well, in some cases, they don't. And they're just parading and, and it's, it's a show, and it's a pretense. For whatever reason, as much as I like to psychoanalyze things, I've never quite figured that one out. Why anybody would want to play church, or why anybody would want to have one foot in the, in the church and one foot in the world, I just don't understand that. Um, in fact, if I'm going to go do something that, uh, that's wrong, I'm just going to go do it. You know what I'm saying? I'm not going to try to impress you while I'm doing it. <laughs> I don't care that much. Maybe that's a fault of mine, but... And so we're going to see things in Corinthians where you just you really should ask the question, man, how does a, how does a saved person do that? And sometimes the answer is they're pro- they may not even know God on a personal level. But the other side of that is Christian people do some jacked up stuff sometimes. Genuinely saved people. I mean, I'm talking people that have been born again by the Spirit of God. They put their faith in the finished work of Christ. Uh, they, they, Christian people are capable of doing some really stupid things. Now there's where you should have gotten on board with me and said amen. Because the reality is, here's the reality. Paul uses this, this terminology in chapter 1, verse number 18. We sort of ended here last week. In one eighteen. Paul said, the preaching of the cross or the message of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. You know, the reality is, if we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we are saved. We're born again. The Bible says that in the past tense, in many passages, that we've been saved by God's power, that we are secure in Christ uh, through his finished work on the cross. But the reality is we are all still a work in progress. So while I'm a child of God, I can't be any more of a child of God than what I am. I'm also still growing in grace. I'm also still trying to become more like Jesus. So every born-again believer is still flawed. We still live in a physical body that's capable of some pretty heinous stuff. 
Amen. So we're going to see that in the book of Corinthians. And, and today I want to shift gears just a bit. Again, I, I, we've talked a lot about, in the, in the name of the series is Church is Messy. Uh, this church is messy. Every church is messy. Amen. The difference is some admit they're messy and some pretend like they're not. We just admit our mess. Right? We just tell you right up front, full disclosure, we, we're, still, we're still working on it. I'm still working on me. I hope you're still working on you. Uh, but today I want to shift your thinking just a bit. As we get into chapter two, I could have spent a, m- a lot more time in chapter number one. There's a lot there uh, that we'll circle back to, but uh, I want to sh- change gears just a bit in chapter number two. And, and before we even read our text today, I want to begin by, by asking you a few questions. Again, uh, I've said this before. I feel the need to say it. Don't answer out loud. Okay. These are contemplative. I want you to think with me. I I want to provoke you to think a little bit this morning. I know it's 924 AM, but if you're like me, you're, you're pretty deep into caffeine already. Amen. I'm a cup of coffee and one and a half energy drinks in this morning. So I'm going to be talking fast, but, but I want to provoke you to think just a little bit. I want to ask you some questions and I want you to, I want you to honestly answer these the best that you can in your own heart. I want you to look introspectively and think about what I'm asking you. The question is simply this. How do you view God? How do you understand God? When you think about God, I don't just mean the, the, the greater concept of there being a God out there, that, this greater idea that, that there's more than us, but when you think about God in nature, when you think about who God is, in character, how do you view God or how do you understand God? Let me, let me try to help you understand what I, what I mean by that. We all in time, whether we realize it or don't realize it, from our earliest memories to this present moment, have developed a very patented mental construct of God's nature and character, most of which happened inadvertently and came as a result of our environment. Most of us didn't set out at an early age to, to develop a certain imagery of God. And yet we all do it. We all over time, from, from the earliest of our, of, our, of our childhood memories until this present moment. Some of us are farther removed from childhood than others, right? But from, from the moment you were able to begin conceptualizing, from the moment you were be able to, to begin even forming your own thoughts and opinions, you have been developing from that day until this very moment, you have been developing a mental construct of God's nature. When you think of God, there are certain feelings associated with those thoughts. There are certain things in your heart that are all tangled up within the DNA of, of who you are as a human being. Uh, they're, they're directly connected to how you view God. So, so how do you view him? When you think about God, when you, when you conceptualize God, when you try to think of being in relationship God, with God, how do you view God? So I'm going I'm to ask some more questions, some leading questions to help materialize this concept even more. You ready? You got your thinking caps on? When you think about God, do you view God through the lens of an institution like when you, when you think about God, maybe, maybe those thoughts are directly linked to some system of prayers or the smell of incense or a water basin or a building. And I'm not being silly, but, but maybe when you think of God, you, you have sort of institutionalized God to where your, your mindset, your vision, your view of God is, is inseparably connected to a religious institution, maybe within that institution or maybe even within that religious system, your view of God is directly linked with spiritual leaders or a group of spiritual leaders. 
And I'm not saying altogether that that's wrong. I'm just saying when you think about God, I want you to think, how do you view him? Do you view uh, yourself, for example, coming into the presence of God? Do you see yourself needing to go through a certain set of rituals to get into his presence? Do you, see that, do you feel like in order to connect with God, you have to go through certain motions, you have to follow certain rules or rituals or, or certain situations that you were maybe trained up in as a child? So when you think of God, perhaps this morning, I'm just saying, provoking you to thought, maybe you think of God and your thoughts of God, your conceptualization of God uh, is, is directly connected to an institution. Maybe you this morning see God as a cosmic high sheriff. That God is out riding around like Wyatt Earp, right? That he's wielding his badge and his gun, he's flexing his authoritative muscle, and he's ready to strike down evildoers and miscreants wherever he goes. Maybe you view God in these terms that God is out there righting all the wrongs and that his, his, his ultimate duty is to see to it that those who break the law and those who cross over boundaries are, are judged and dealt with in some vengeful way. Maybe you view God as the one who sort of balances all the good with the evil in the world. Maybe your view of God this morning is that of an angry, vengeful judge who's eyes are burning with fire and whose heart burns with wrath and he's ready to send judgment on the earth any day now. Now, again, often, if, you, if you've been in churches very long, you would get this idea of God. We would see God sort of projected in this way, that God is angry, and God is, is mad at the world, and God is ready to pour out his fires of wrath and judge those and somehow bring justice to all the evil in the world. Maybe that's how you view God. Or perhaps this morning, I'm just throwing this out there. Y'all okay with me just sort of spitballing some ideas? Maybe your view of God is that of, 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 of a distant, very cold, uncaring, unsympathetic being. Who, yeah, there's a God out there. Obviously, we didn't get here from nothing. Obviously, you know, lo- logic and common sense teaches us. You don't have to be a theologian to, to recognize that in order to get everything, there has to be something greater than us out there. But maybe your idea of God is that, that yeah, he exists, and, and maybe he's sitting out there on, on, on the rings of, of the planets, or he's, he's orbiting out there in, in outer space, but he just doesn't care about me. He's cold, he's indifferent, he's uncaring, and when I pray, I don't think he hears me. When I call out to him, I, I don't believe that my prayers go anywhere, because, yeah, he's there, he's God, but he's too busy to care about somebody as insignificant as I am. Which leads me to this other realization and reality, and that is that that in many cases, your view of God and my view of God has to do more with how we view ourselves in relation to God. And, And maybe you see yourself today as a colossal disappointment and someone with whom God just sort of puts up with And it's because he's so kind and because he's so gracious and so forgiving that he hasn't cast you off into the abyss of forgottenness by now. But maybe your view of God has more to do with the way that you view yourself and you think of God in terms of of someone who is just sort of waiting for you to step out of line one more time so that he can drop the gavel of justice in your life. And so we have to stop and think about how we view God. When you think of God, what do you think of? 
what emotions are attached to your idea, your construct of God himself. And so I've mentioned to you several times, I know that was heavy, golly, I haven't even read the text. We're going to read the text in just a second. But, but, but let me sort of shift gears and, and we'll come back to that in just a minute. But, but, but I've mentioned to you several times throughout the introduction of 1 Corinthians that, that often the best way to form a healthy thesis to, is, to, uh, is to study the antithesis. Y'all remember me saying that? Uh, you should because I often stutter when I try to say antithesis. antithesis. It's a hard word to say. But, but the church in Corinth, as we've already, uh, as we've already seen, is, was in most ways the antithesis of a healthy church family, right? <laughs> when we write books about what a church should look like, we generally don't use Corinth as an example. The church in Corinth was, was in every way virtually the opposite of who we should be. And, and you'll see this more as we get further into the book. But, but from here on out, you're going to begin to see, I hope you'll begin to see at least, if you'll stay with me in the study, you will see it, because I'll keep pointing it out. But, but we're going to see a consistent pattern in 1 Corinthians of prognosis and prescription all throughout the book. You'll see a, a consistent pattern of prognosis and prescription. Paul will identify a problem, and then he'll offer a solution. And so today, I want you to look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and begin in verse number 1. As we read, Paul said, I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of man except the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now we've not received, or now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual now the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that we may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. Our Heavenly Father. We bow our hearts in your presence today, and Lord, we confess to you our desperate need to know you on a cellular level, not just as some far-off philosophy or ideology. God, we don't need to know you through the movements and motions of a religious institution, 
or a man-made system, but God, today we need to know you on a personal level, that we need to intricately understand who you are and who we are in you. I pray that you'd bless this time today. Father, open our eyes. Help us to understand God. Give us revelation. I pray that your spirit would teach us, that you'd give us ears to hear. And Lord, if there's someone here under the sound of my voice who does not know Christ as their personal Savior, I pray that today would be the day that they would hear you calling them. God, that they would hear your voice of mercy, that they would respond to the gift of grace. Bless our time together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me begin by sort of breaking down. Y'all ain't nervous that I'm just now starting, are you? It's a very short sermon, I promise. Uh, but uh, let me begin by kind of laying out the outline of chapter number two. Uh, if, you be, if you notice again in the beginning, chapter two, verses one through five, we see Paul's methodology for church planning and discipleship. Now, now if Paul were to write a book on church planning and discipleship methods, I don't think it would sell very well in our modern Western Christian church culture. Because here's what Paul said about church planning. Here's, here was Paul's approach when he went to Corinth. Now, Corinth, again, was, was both steeped in debauchery, uh, religion, philosophy. Uh, they were sort of a crossroads. The, the city back in those days was a bit of a crossroads of commerce. There was just a lot of things going on in Corinth. But, but those days uh, among the Greeks, the Greco-Romans, uh, we understand that they, they elevated intellectualism very highly. And Paul was an intellectual guy. We see him in the book of Acts debating with the philosophers at Athens. I mean, Paul was no slouch. He was a very brilliant human being. And yet in Corinth, here's what he says about his own personal approach in reaching the people of Corinth. He said in verse 1, I didn't come to you with excellence of speech or wisdom. Uh, In verse 2, he said, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He said, I was with you in weakness and and in much trembling and fear. Paul said, my speech and my preaching. He said, I really wasn't all that impressive, was I? He said, I didn't come at you and try to impress you. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't enter in there and try to use, you know, pervasive speeches and, and sort of slide a hand. Paul said, the reality is I was very black and white. I was very blunt. I was very basic in my approach. And here's what he said. Paul said, when I was with you, I determined not to know anything except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now we would all probably read that this morning because we're good Christian people. And we would say, amen, Paul, that's all they needed, brother, Right? All they needed was the cross. Hallelujah. But I want you to think about this. How would you feel if every Sunday you showed up to church and it was the same sermon? Don't, don't, don't. Listen. Hey. We, listen, we have built our, our culture around honesty and openness. So don't start putting on a facade now. You'd get aggravated. I know you would. Come on, man. We heard this last week right? You preached that sermon last week. We heard about grace last week. We heard about the cross last week. Paul said, I'm telling you, when I was with you, that's all I preached. I determined not to know anything among you except for Jesus Christ and crucified. Now, again, I don't read books on church growth. I wouldn't be able to follow them if I, if I tried. But the, but the reality is that if Paul wrote a book, and that was, that was chapter one, first paragraph, end of the book, it wouldn't sell very well because we are, we, are, we are so highly impressed with ourselves. 
And our abilities to build things, our abilities to grow movements and ministries, we're so impressed with that that we've invested and involved every resource except for the single most resource that we all need, and that is the mercy and the power and the grace of God. And yet Paul said, when I was with you, I determined that was all I know. He said, I'm not trying to build a following. My purpose, my desire, my drive is to consistently point people to Jesus. Now, I've learned this about people, among many things I've learned about people. But one thing is true in most cases. Everybody's either trying to be a hero or they're looking for a hero. It's just human nature. We are either trying to be a hero or we're looking for a hero. That's why they had this problem in chapter 1 where Paul said, you know, your, your issue is that, that, part of your issue at least, is that some say I'm of Apollo, some say I'm of Paul, some say, man, I'm a follower of Simon Peter, some say we just follow Jesus, right? We're a Jesus church. That sounds spiritual, and yet it really isn't. It's impractical. And, it's, it, and it violates the design of God. God has given us good spiritual leaders. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. No leader is fit to follow if that leader is not following Jesus. But Paul, Paul said, as long as I'm following Jesus, follow me. And yet, and yet we want to we break off into factions. And we, we want to sort of compartmentalize ourselves. And I asked the question last week, and it sounds quite silly, doesn't it? I asked the question last week, I said, was Jesus a Baptist? And we all chuckle, and we all laugh. And, and, and some of y'all, I need to clarify, he wasn't a Pentecostal either. Amen? He wasn't a Methodist. He wasn't an Episcopalian. We know he wasn't a Catholic. I just let that one settle. Right? And, and again, hear me out. Hear me out. I'm, I'm realistic enough to tell you that, that certain church movements and denominations are closer to being biblical than others. 100% true. Y'all are nervous to answer questions now. But that's 100% true. Some are closer than others. I promise you the Baptist denomination is closer than the Mormons. Don't get offended. Study for yourself. I'm just saying. But the reality is, at the same time, we cannot lower God to, to, to fit into our little churchy constructs and ideas of how God should operate. Jesus wasn't a Baptist. Jesus wasn't a Methodist. Jesus wasn't a Presbyterian. Jesus is the very essence of our connection with God. And you can't bring God down to a religious institution or a system. You can't, you can't, you can't, you can't bring God down to a level, a human level, where we all can go, okay, that makes sense. Nothing about God makes sense. He's so much bigger than what we can comprehend. The Bible says, or rather, he told us in his word, he said, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. My ways are so much higher, and my thoughts are so much greater. It's not a diss to humanity, but it is the reality that God is God, and we're not. And yet we consistently try to compartmentalize God, and we consistently try to reduce God down to a religious formula, and it never works. And so Paul said, when I was with you, I determined, I wasn't, I wasn't promoting my denomination, I wasn't promoting my, my theological construct, I wasn't promoting my explanation of the doctrine of soteriology, I was preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified, plus nothing, minus nothing, because he didn't even send me to baptize, he just sent me to preach the gospel. That was Paul's method, amen? Now y'all go start churches, do just like Paul did. 
That's, what, that's, how, that's how Paul started the church of Corinth. And then the second thing I want you to see is found in, in verses 6 through 9. I'm telling you, this is going to go fast. So fast your head will spin. You're going to be like, man, it's over already. Yeah, that's how this is going to go today. Verses 6 through 9, just read it with me. It says, however, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. So in other words, Paul said there's, there's nothing wrong with, with going deeper intellectually even. There's nothing wrong with, with digging in to the finer points of the truths of Scripture and theology. And again, all the, all the ology, soteriology, eschatology ecclesiology. It's, it's, it's intriguing, and we should be studying, and we should be digging in, and we should be grasping for a greater understanding. So Paul said it's not that there's not more to know. It's just that you have to understand some things fundamentally before you can move on, because if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? You have to have a, you have to have a deep foundation of understanding before you can move on to a higher level. So watch what he says in verse 7. He said, but we speak the wisdom of God, in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. I'm telling you, verse 8 preaches all by itself, and I might preach a whole sermon on it. But Paul said, if, if, the, if the rulers of this world had known what God was going to do through the cross, they would have never crucified Jesus. God confounded the wisdom of the wise. God overthrew the kingdom of evil and darkness in this world, not with a scepter, not with a sword, but with two rugged pieces of wood and three nails. And he said, if the rulers of this world, if the powers, the kingdom of darkness in this world would have known what they were doing, they would have never crucified the Lord of glory. Verse number nine, I can't preach that right now. I want to so bad. But verse number nine, he says, but as it is written, eye has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Now hear me out. This is a big statement. Point number two is not just one word. It's a big statement. So hear me out. The wisdom of God is often paradoxical in quality and essence when viewed through the lens of natural understanding. So herein lies the problem with the way we often view God. We view God, as I said earlier, through the lens of our own experiences. If you were raised, and I don't mean to open old wounds, but if you were raised in an abusive environment where anytime you stepped out of line, I'm not talking about healthy correction. Children need healthy correction. Say amen right there. Amen. There they do. We're raising a very soft generation because we can't tell junior no. Junior needs to know the word no. And junior needs to know when no is violated, there are consequences. I'm not in any way saying that we don't discipline wrong. We should. It's biblical. But hear me out. If you were raised in an environment where you had a harsh father or mother who Anytime you stepped out of line, there, it wasn't a, a talking to, it wasn't a corrective situation. It was more like you were in the way and you upset them, and because you upset them, you were going to pay hell for the encroachment on their peace of mind. Then you might view God as that harsh high sheriff who's ready to fling the six gun and drop the hammer. If that's the environment that you were raised in, then, then that shaped the way you view God. 
Because here's, here's one of the heavy burdens that we bear as parents. Our children naturally view God through us as they sort of transpose us as being the ones that God has entrusted with their lives. They sort of begin to view God through the lens of, of their upbringing and the way they see us as parents. So as, as parents, if, if we were raised in an environment where, where it was very harsh and we were very much criticized anytime we stepped out of line there was hell to pay, then you probably have a very harsh view of God. Or if you were raised in an environment where, where you, were, you were raised by a father or a mother who was very cold and uncaring and indifferent and you were better seen than heard and, and you were treated that way, then you probably view God as being very much the same way, that God is cold, he's distant, he brought you into this world, he can take you out. Other than that, don't bother him, don't upset him, don't get in his way, because you're, you, were, you were thought of and viewed as, as a child, just another mouth to feed. And so you might view God in that way. And so we have to recognize when we think about our personal view of God, as I said, we all have our own patented mental construct. It's different for every single person. We could go around the room this morning, and if we were able to articulate in, in, in clear terms the way that we view God, if we could elaborate on it with every emotion, with every intricate thought, with every detail, every single person's view of God would be slightly different. Because we all view God through a different lens. So it's vital that we recognize that the wisdom of God is often paradoxical in quality and essence when viewed through the lens of natural understanding. Our natural minds can't comprehend the magnitude of who he is. So that's why Paul said the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. You remember reading that a minute ago? He said the natural man, through our natural understanding, you can't calculate the personality of God. You can't philosophize the wisdom of God. He is so much higher and so much greater and so far beyond any box or construct that we would put him in that there's only one way to understand the nature of God. And so then when we read certain things in the Bible, certain things within the scriptures seem very foreign to the way that we would naturally view things. Amen? Now, I would normally be getting upset at this point that you're so quiet, but I understand that's a lot, isn't it? Think about this. In, in order to really understand God, we have to begin to see God through new eyes. We have to begin to think of God with a new mind. We have to begin to feel God from a new heart. And so, so many things that we read in the Bible are, are paradoxical. They sound, they sound like the antithesis of what we're longing for. Let me give you a couple of, of examples of what I mean. Y'all with me? So, so, so think about this. Just, just a couple of examples. In order, according to the Bible, to really experience life, we have to die. That's backwards. But according to scriptures, in order to really experience life on a higher level, there are things that we have to die to. Let me show you what Jesus said. Matthew chapter 10, verse number 39. He said, he who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. You know what that is? That's a paradox. It's the opposite of, uh, it sounds contradictory. 
And it's the opposite of what we think. We think, man, I got to keep feeding my life. I got to keep getting more. I got to keep gaining more. If I'm ever going to be happy, if I'm ever going to have joy, I've got to achieve. I've got to drive. I've got to push. I got to work harder. I got to accumulate. I got to get another raise. I got to chuck more money away. I need a bigger truck, a nicer boat. We always articulate our satisfaction in terms of things. When the reality is, Jesus said, if you find your life, you're going to lose it. You're going to strive for things, and once you gain those things, you're going to find that you're just as empty now as you were before you had them. You're going to look for another thrill. You're going to, you're going to find another way to get that adrenaline rush, and at the end of that, you're going to find that that too was insatiable and just left you feeling more empty and dissatisfied. So it's a paradox. The wisdom of God, think about this, the wisdom of God is often the opposite of what we would think of ourselves. If you want to live, you have to die. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> but now, here's another one. John 12, verse number 24. This is one of my favorite passages in reference to this truth. In John 12, 24, Jesus said, uh, unless a grain or a corn of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it abides alone. Now, one of the reasons why this passage is, is one of my favorites in, in, in reference to this truth, and I've told some of y'all this story before, so just bear with me as you hear it again, but when I was very, uh, very new in ministry, Stephanie and I had just started ministry back in our early 20s, and I uh, started full-time ministry when I was 23 years old, and we were traveling in full-time evangelism, which means we traveled from church to church to church uh, and preached around the country, and we're very poor. That's all that means. <laughs> very poor. Abject poverty. But... Um, but we were down in Alabama, and, 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 and I was going to be helping at a, at a youth camp in Valley, Alabama, just north of Birmingham, and, and it was called Living Waters Youth Camp. And the guy who runs the camp in those days, in the, in the, in the camps that I kind of run with, uh, he was legendary for just being a prayer warrior, and, and I'd heard stories about him. And, and how he was just so full of the Spirit of God and just, just sort of this unique sort of... And, and, and trust me, he was, a, he was very much an eccentric human being. He was a very different kind of guy, kind of wild-eyed. You know what I'm saying? So I liked him. And, uh, and so we got there about two weeks before the camp, the first camp started that summer, and, and we were helping out. And I was out there raking leaves, actually raking acorns, because that's about all they had in that part of Alabama. But we're out there raking acorns, just getting the grounds all cleaned up. And, and his name's Mike. Mike. Mike knelt down like this, and he, and he picked up an acorn off the ground, and he held it up to me. And knowing the kind of person he was, he said in his Alabama southern drawl, he goes, brother, you know what that is. And I'm thinking, oh God, <laughs> I have to say something spiritual right now. <laughs> I can't just go, that's an acorn, Mike, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, so here's what I did. I go, yes, sir, brother. Because to be spiritual down south, you have to talk in a southern accent. So I go, yes, sir, brother. That's a seed. He goes, no, shoot. <laughs> and he pointed toward a big oak tree. He said, that's what that is, right there. And he dug his finger in the ground. He goes, but it's got to be buried first. It's got to be broken. And I never forgot that. Because Jesus said the only way for your life to really flourish is if you'll lay it down for my sake. If you're willing to give all that you have, 
when you give it all, what you'll find is that God didn't necessarily want the thing. He wanted you. It wasn't Isaac that God wanted. God wanted Abraham. And so God is not asking you to give up things and give up your life for the sake of giving it up. God is asking for your heart. And until you really learn what it is to bury yourself and be broken and understand that God is not looking for you to impress, God's not looking for you to somehow be stellar and and shine for everybody to see. He wants to work through your cracks and crevices and your brokenness. He said, until you're willing to die and just be who you are and let me be who I am through you, you'll never really live it's a paradox. But real life for the Christian is only found when we're willing to die and say, you know what, this whole thing isn't about me. It's not about me gaining more or having more accolades or more applause or more pleasure. It's about people seeing Jesus in me. It's about, about me being relatable. It's about me being who I am and understanding that who I am is not enough. But in Christ, I have everything. It's a paradox. In order to experience life, we have to die to certain things. Here's another paradox. Y'all ready? I'm telling you, this sermon is almost over. (laughs) Here's another paradox in Scripture. In order to be rich in this world, we have to make ourselves poor. (laughs) Nice, quiet crowd this morning. (laughs) But in order to be rich in this world, we have to make ourselves poor. Notice this. I didn't make it up. Proverbs chapter 13, verse number 7 says there, there is one who makes himself rich, yet has nothing. And one who makes himself poor, yet has great riches. That's the stupidest thing I ever heard. Is it though? There is that makes himself rich, yet has nothing. I could tell you story after story after story. Not personal because I've never been rich. But I could tell you story after story of people I've known who had everything that we dream of as far as material things are concerned, and yet they were empty and miserable. I'm not saying money can't buy anything, but it can't buy satisfaction. And so he says there is who makes himself rich yet has nothing, and those who make themselves poor yet have great riches. Now listen to what Jesus said. Here's the New Testament version of that. Jesus said in in Luke 6 verse 38, he said, give and it will be given to you. No, that's opposite, isn't it? We don't think like that. I think I, I got, no, you give to me. Give me more. But Jesus said, give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be put into your bosom for, with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. So in God's economy, the way to get is to give. In God's economy, the way to keep is to give away to loosen your grip, to put it in God's hands. But, but, but hear me out. I don't have time to preach all of that, but, but here's, the, here's the essence of what I'm trying to say to you. These concepts sound outlandish on the surface. But the truth is, even from a human perspective, now we have discovered this. I say we, as, as, as a world, is concerned philosophically, psychologically, we have come to learn that money doesn't buy happiness, and self-centeredness only leads to ultimate ruin, misery, and more frustration right? I mean, again, the world's got it figured out now. God said it 2,000 years ago. But now, now we realize I could be talking to a room of unbelievers this morning. I really could. I could be talking to a room full of atheists or Hindus, you name it, non-Christian people. I could be talking to any non-Christian group this morning and say exactly what I just said, that money doesn't buy happiness and self-centeredness only leads to more misery. And if they were thinking people, they would agree. 
You know why? Because now we're starting to figure it out. That the key to happiness is not the, the assertion or, or, the, or gaining more. Just these examples that I gave you prove to us the superiority of God's wisdom. Now, I have to give you this, otherwise the rest of the sermon won't make any sense. But do you remember the question that we opened with today? How do you view God? How do you understand God? The reason why that question is so important is simply this. If our understanding of God is distorted or contaminated, then that makes everything else in our lives unclear. If, if your view of God is distorted or skewed, if your view of God is, is, if you're blinded to the reality of who he really is, then everything else in your life, I'm telling you, everything else in your life will be adversely affected. So everything about chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians has to do with understanding. Now, it may not seem like it on the surface, but if you'll read and study over and over and go over it many, many times, you'll begin to see the, the underlying theme of 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is that what we really need is we need understanding. There are things that God wants you to understand because a lack of understanding in these areas will distort every relationship, will distort every interaction, and every endeavor that you set your mind to will be demolished by the fact that your view of God as a believer in Jesus Christ, is distorted. So I'm going to give you two fundamental points of reference. Y'all good with this? We are, I'm telling you, we're right on time. Don't bother looking at your clock. <laughs> we're perfect. But I want to give you two fundamental points of reference that affect every single aspect of your life. I've already given them to you, but I'm going to state them in plain language. You ready? Number one, how you view God will change how you view the world. If you have a distorted view of God then you will have a distorted view of the world. Think about the simplest little statement in the Bible about the nature of God. It's found in the very first verse of the very first book of the very first chapter of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in case you were wondering. Simply says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, good Christian people being the, the astute scholars that we are, have spent much time and written many books and had exhaustive debates, taught classes, series on the, on the reality that God created the heaven and the earth in six literal days, and we've argued about it. And we fought over this notion that, well, well, I don't believe that God created the heavens and the earth in six literal days, but that there was a gap between each day in Genesis, and we call that the gap theory, or we believe that God just sort of got the ball rolling, and then we, we argue over what we call theistic evolution, that somehow God just started the whole thing, and everything sort of evolved into what it is today, and we fight over this stuff. Well, I'm a, I'm a six literal day guy, or I'm a gap theorist. You know what? I'm just going to go ahead and tell you none of it matters. <laughs> settled. I just settled the debate. Write that in a book. I'll sign it. We can publish it and make millions of dollars. None of it matters. I don't care what you believe about that. Don't get offended. But I don't care what you, I don't care if you believe God created the heaven and the earth in six literal 24-hour periods, or if you believe that, or if you believe there's a five million year gap between day one and day, I really don't care. You know why? 
because it does not matter. That was not the purpose of the writing of the book of Genesis. The purpose of the writing of the book of Genesis was not so that as Christians now we can prove carbon dating's wrong. That's not the purpose. Here's the purpose. God wants you to know where you came from. Have you ever thought about, you got to think about who the book was written to. You know, Genesis is, is the first book of the Pentateuch. We call the five books of Moses. Moses was the guy that led the people of Israel out of the Egyptian, out of Egyptian bondage. They were slaves in Egypt for 420 years. Moses was the guy that God used to draw them out of that bondage. He led them out through the wilderness, through the Red Sea, and all the beautiful story that's encapsulated in the Exodus, right? That's the guy God used to write the book of Genesis. Did you know that the people of Israel, being exiled in Egypt for 420 years, every single one of them were brought up believing, or at least being taught, this notion that, that, that there's not just one God, that there are many gods. We call this polytheism. Egyptians were polytheistic. They still are, in fact. But in Egypt, they were polytheistic, believed in the sun god and the moon god and the river god, Right? The flea god, the frog god. I mean, you think it's crazy, but really, if you start looking into it, it is crazy. But that's what they were brought up in. So when God inspired Moses to write the book of Genesis, and he said, very first thing I want you to tell them, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You didn't come from a plethora of gods. You didn't get here by accident. There is one God that created all things. And then in chapter number two, verse number seven, or verse number, or chapter number two, verse number eight, rather, the Bible says, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Not only is there one God, but he created you in his own likeness and image. In the Latin, the term is imago Dei, meaning in the image of God. But now I want you to think about this. I'm trying to give you a whole theology lesson in one quick little point, but we have to get this. In 1 John Chapter 4, verse 8. Remember the question is, how do you view God? Remember that? I hope you, I hope you got it. I hope you held on to that. Because I'm going to tell you one thing that you need to know. You have to know about God in order to understand his nature. First John chapter 4, verse number 8 says, For he who does not love does not know God. You ready? For God is love. I want to clarify something. It does not say God is loving. Because love is not what he does. Love is who he is. So when you think about God, if your image of God is anything but that of a benevolent creator. Now I understand this isn't the only thing we know about God, but we're not talking about attributes. We're not talking about behaviors right now. We're talking about character. Who God is. God is love. He's the epitome of it. He's the essence of it. You can't know love if you don't know God. And you can't say you know God and operate in anything but love because God is love. And so in order to exemplify God, we have to express love because God is the one who gave us the gift of love. And so we have to see God. And again, I know this isn't the only thing we know about God, but it is the single most fundamental truth that we all have to understand about who he is because everything else we know about him flows from his nature. And God in nature is a loving God. God in nature is a merciful God. God in nature is filled with grace. Now watch this. Second thing that you have to have 
straightened out, figured out, as far as your points of view are concerned in life, number one, you have to, have, to, have to really analyze how you view God, but number two, you have to analyze how you view yourself. You remember a moment ago, I pointed out in Genesis chapter 2, verse number 7, it says, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils, and breath of life, man became a living soul. Again, that's the Latin term, imago Dei, meaning in the image of God. You have to recognize that you are the creation of God. You are. No, you are. You are. You're the creation of God. No doubt flawed. No doubt fragile. We have our little aggravating tendencies and idiosyncrasies and isms and all that stuff about us, fragile in many ways, fragmented, but, but you're God's creation nonetheless. And so think about, think about this. If, if all of 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is about understanding, now hear me out, if all of Genesis chapter number 2 is about understanding, and it is, then, then why in verse 2, think about it, if it's all about understanding, what's the theme of 1 Corinthians chapter 2? The theme of 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is understanding. Four of you were listening. Appreciate it. Say it with me. The theme of 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is understanding. If that is true, if that is true, then why in verse 2 did Paul say, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified? If it's all about understanding, then Paul, why didn't you give us more understanding? I mean, you talk about Jesus Christ and him crucified, but I still have questions. I still want answers. And maybe this morning your heart cries, God, I, I don't understand. There are things I don't understand. God, why? Why did this happen? Why me? Why in the midst of all my confusion, all my doubts, all my fears, would you keep pointing me to the cross? I'll tell you why. Because the cross is the ultimate manifestation of God's intrinsic nature and your intrinsic value in the eyes of God. The cross is the crescendo of who God is. And the cross is the crescendo of who you are to him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. In the cross, God said, I would rather die for you than live without you. I would rather give the life of my only begotten son than live without you. And I want you to hear me this morning and hear me well. You were created in the image of God as a human being, not a human doing. God is interested in you, not what you can produce. God loves you right here, right now, with all your flaws, your scars, your skeletons, your shadows. All the things that follow us around, all the things that we're ashamed of, all the mistakes that you've made that you wish you could undo. Y'all ever, I, I, I consistently hit on my computer when I'm typing, control Z. Y'all know what that does, don't you? That's the undo button. I wish life had a control Z. Then I could just hit undo. Wish I hadn't done that. God, I'm sorry, I made a mistake again. Life doesn't have an undo button, but life does have a God who loves you in spite of your flaws. And so, Paul, 
I want to know why I'm hurting, Paul. I want to know why this happened, Paul. I want to understand some things in life. He said, before you can understand all those things, I'm not saying I don't have answers. I'm not saying God won't reveal it to you. But before you can accept the answers, before you can ever understand fully why you went through what you went through, you have to recognize the fact that the cross defines everything you are to him. Yeah, he's holy. He's perfect. He's flawless. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. He knows all things. He sees all things. He knows your flaws. He knows your sins. He knows your failures. But above all else, he knows and loves you. And you'll never understand all the rest until you can see yourself through the lens of Calvary's cross. Until you can recognize your intrinsic value is that God loved you so much. Have you ever thought about the beauty of that little word nestled right there in John 3.16? God so loved. You know you only use the word so when you don't have words to describe what you're trying to say. We say, we use it all the time. I'm so hungry. Right? I'm so tired. How tired are you? I can't even describe. I'm just so freaking tired. I'm so tired of this. It means I'm fed up and I don't have words to describe it. If we said, God, how much do you love us? He'd say, I can't even tell you. I don't have words. I just love you so much that I'd rather give the life of my only begotten son to die for you because I would rather die in your place than live without you. Yeah, you're sinful. So am I. Your life's probably pretty jacked up in some ways. But Jesus loves you today. And you'll never understand all the whys. You'll never conceptualize all the reasons until you know that you came from God and your ultimate destiny is to be one with God through the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's stand together this morning with our heads bowed and eyes closed. We're going to sing another worship song. If you're here today and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, I don't mean to mess up your idea of what church is supposed to be, but you don't even have to walk an aisle right now. You don't even need to come forward. You don't need to take somebody's hand. If where you stand or where you sit, right here, right now, you'll pour your heart out before God and simply put your faith in the fact that Christ gave his life so that you could be atoned and made one with God himself. If you'll call on him this morning, the Bible says if you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What a beautiful truth. For with the heart, one believes and is made righteous. And with the mouth, that confession, that cry, is made to salvation. God will answer if you call. Father, in Jesus' name, we submit our hearts. Bless this time now, we pray in Christ's name.